Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. You know, I'm trying to think if I've ever received a better compliment than being told that I'm one of you. Things about as good as it gets. I appreciate that. Easter was phenomenal. I really appreciate, as was mentioned, all the work that was done and, and your staff and the way that they were very careful to make sure that everybody had a place to sit, everybody had a place to be welcomed. And I was very proud of you because as a church family, I didn't see anybody say, now wait a minute, that's my seat. <laughs> I spent years breaking this seat in but you gave it up willingly, and I appreciate that. I want to remind you, the diligent work of your pastor search committee, that filling out that survey would be very helpful to them. It's going to help them understand, as a church family, what your thoughts are and what your hopes are for your future pastor. But I do want to mention this to you. That survey is going to be put into a synthesis, but it's not going to be published. The results of it are not going to be published. It's for the committee. It's for them to understand. So I'm going to ask you to be mindful and respectful of them that they're not going to be sharing those results with you, but it's because it's important for them to get a heartbeat of the church, but it's not something that's meant to be a polling sample to determine the next pastor, okay? So they're working very hard with that. You'll remember that a few weeks ago, we started a series entitled This I Know talking about the great doctrines of the church. And the doctrines of this church are found on the website. You can go to uh, where it, uh, it says our mission and it explains what the doctrines are of this church that we hold to. We have talked about first, what does the Bible say about Scripture? And then last week we said, okay, what does the Bible say about humankind? What does it say about salvation? And today, we're going to explore what the Bible says about God. Now, I, I want to very quickly tell you that I want you to understand that today's message is meant to be an overview and not an in-depth destination, okay? Because uh, if I were to ask, what does the Bible say about God? The short answer is, a lot. And so, uh, I, I just want to be aware of that. Years ago, my dad looked at me one time and he said, Roger... I want you to know that when I ask you what time it is, I'm not asking you to build a watch. And so, I want to be very careful today to fly at the tops, okay? So, I'm, I'm just acknowledging that I'm flying at the very top of this. And so, we're going to provide a framework for you to better comprehend and understand God. I want you to realize that this is a journey and not a simply a destination. And if we're going to take this journey of understanding who God is, wouldn't it be a good idea that we start by asking God to tell us? So let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you. And Lord, as we are going to talk today very clearly about who you are, what your word says about the Trinity, what your word says to us about how we're to understand you, God, we pray that you would safeguard the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart, and that they would be pleasing to you. For we pray it, Jesus, in your holy and precious name. Amen. 
Now, I want to begin with you with a definition and a promise. In Hebrews chapter 11, that Hebrews 11 passage known as the roll call of faith, that passage begins with this definition about faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, or the evidence of things not seen. And then as he continues through that passage talking about those that walked in faith in that entire chapter speaking about faith, there's a promise found in verse 6 that I think is an anchor for us today, which is this. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I want you to be reminded that God wants us to pursue him, to know him, and he makes a promise to us that if we'll do that, he'll be found. If you do that, he's going to bless you. God wants us to be in that pursuit. And our primary source for everything we're going to talk about today is the Bible. I, I want to be very clear about that, that the Bible is sufficient for all faith and practice in God's church. But we also have a confessional statement that is a helpful guide, but it's not scripture. And we say very clearly it's a confessional statement. It's known as the Baptist faith and message. And let me just mention the difference between a confessional statement and a creed. Because some of you may have grown up in churches where as you were inside a worship service, you said the creed or one of the creeds as part of the worship service. A creedal statement by nature is about who we believe in. A confessional statement is, uh, by nature is about what we believe about who we believe in. The challenge of a creed, and I've read the creeds, I have the creeds, and I, and I have found some wonderful things in studying the creeds. The problem with the creeds can be this. In some churches, some people, and even some denominations will take a creedal statement and elevate it to where it is equal to the Bible. And we don't do that because no work of man can exceed the truth of God's Word. And so that's where we stand. We stand clearly upon the Bible. We understand the value of confessional statements. We understand the value of trying to put things together in a way that is easy for people to understand. But we're standing on Scripture. So what does the Bible say about God. And there's not a better place to start than in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 as Moses is doing his final address to all the children of Israel before he passes on and he says the Shema which becomes the central prayer of Judaism, the central understanding of monotheism which is this. Hear O Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The Lord is one. Because I want you to remember that when the children of Israel were going through Egypt and they went through the desert areas, they were going about to go to the promised land, every place that they walked, 
they walked through countries and nations that practiced multiple gods. Matter of fact, some practiced regional gods. It'd be like a, a god for Montgomery County. And then when you go to Harris County, you got to get your next god so that you can get covered in Harris County. It was a different understanding. And what God said to them, what God wanted them to understand is, I'm God, period. There's no other god but me. I am one. The Baptist Faith and Message refers to it like this, summarizes it. There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and the ruler of the universe. There are three things that are benchmarks I'd like for you to cluster around and think about when it comes to understanding God. When I grew up, we called them the omnis because they all started with O-M-N-I. The first is this, that God is omnipresent. That means God's everywhere, all the time, for eternity. He's, in the, he's already been in the past. He's been in the future, future. He's been in the present because God stands outside of time. He is not bound by time. He created time. And there will be a day, the Bible says, where time will be no more. Matter of fact, it tells us in Revelation that there are creatures that are praising God at all times. And part of what they're saying, you are the God who was and is and is to come. There's never been any time where God wasn't there. All time. When Solomon placed the ark in the temple and was praying, he said this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And then in the New Living Translation in Jeremiah 23, 23, God says these words. Am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? No, I am far away at the same time. Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and all the earth, says the Lord? The Bible teaches there's no place I can go that God's not there. The psalmist said, I can go to the highest point. You're there. I can go to the deepest deep. You're there. I can try to hide in my bedchamber. You're there. God, there's no place that you won't find me because you were there before I ever got there. Now, let me mention something very quickly about all the things we're going to talk about today. I have purposely limited myself to two passages of scriptures to every point. Otherwise, we would be here for quite a while. It could even feel like eternity. So I did not do that. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But not only is God everywhere, the Bible says that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. If you thought your mother knew what you were doing, God knows everything you have done, everything that you have thought, everything that you have said. In Psalms 139.1, the psalmist prays, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it altogether. I'll tell you, when I read that, I thought, oh, Lord, if before I said stuff, you could just thump me a little bit, I would do so much better. In Psalms 147, 5, it says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. 
Matter of fact, Jesus said, God loves you so much. He knows you so well that in Matthew 10, 30, he says, even the hairs on your head are numbered. That's a lot of detail. Maybe less for some, but it's a lot of detail. But the reality is, is that God loves us in that way. So God is everywhere. God is all-knowing. But the Bible also says that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And 1 Chronicles 29, 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted head above all. And Jeremiah 32, 17, all Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. The Bible teaches that God is all powerful, that things that we can't do, God can easily do. But once in a while, you'll hear a skeptic say something like this. If, if God's really all powerful, then could God, I don't know, create a rock that is so big that God could lift it. Because if he can't create a rock bigger than he can lift, then he's not all powerful. And if he can't create a rock bigger than he can lift, then he's not all powerful. The problem is with the question. So just walk with me for just a moment because let's think through some things. First of all, don't misunderstand all-powerful and omnipotent to mean that God did not create some limits because he did. He has created some limits just in the natural world. Created matter has a limit. Matter of fact, God says there's some things that he can't do. Did you know that? The Bible says in Hebrews 6, 18, that God says this, I cannot lie. God said, I can't lie. I will never lie. I'm incapable of lying. He will never lie. There's nothing God said. He said in 2 Timothy 2, 13, he will never deny himself. And there will never be a point where God won't acknowledge that he's God. There are several other places you can go to in Scripture, but here's what you need to know. God never compromises his character. And he has created limits. And within those limits, he doesn't ask or try to create the impossible because it could be, quote, possible. So, for instance, there's no such thing. God can't make a two-sided triangle. God does not make, I don't know, a married bachelor. He can't make an elderly baby. It's created matter. It, it, it is a contradiction. It is not a good philosophical premise because God is infinite and created matter by its nature is finite. You might think the walk to your car is a long walk, but there's an end to it. When God creates anything, it's finite. He is the infinite. For him to create something that's being described in that question, you would have to have two infinites. And there's not room in the universe for two infinites because God said, I'm the only one. So it's just a bad question. It's a false question. Because here's the reality. 
God is consistent. Now, I can't tell you how important it is that God is consistent because I'm going to tell you, you don't want a capricious God. I can take you across the world and show you the different gods that people have worshipped that are capricious, that they have to give them an offering or they have to say things a particular way to trick God into doing something. The God that we serve, the only God, is consistent and true and you can trust him. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And here's something you need to know. The enemy is none of those. You need to know that Satan can't be everywhere all the time. You need to know that Satan does not have unlimited power. You need to know that Satan doesn't know everything. Only God does. Satan is a created being. He is a foe that has been defeated. And while at this time, his work is being continued to try to push against God's intentions, God has already solved the problem of Satan on the cross. And in Genesis 3, when God spoke out against the enemy, he looked at him and said, you're going to bruise his heel one day, speaking of the cross, but he's going to crush your head. And what Satan saw as the victory at the death of Jesus, God proclaimed as a victory for all eternity at the resurrection. God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me just pull over to John 14 for a moment. As you read through John 14, you read a discourse that Jesus is having with the disciples as he's explaining to them about what's going to happen now as he comes toward the cross. And in it, he mentions both Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I'm going to read a portion of this. Jesus is telling them, I'm leaving you, but you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. What do you mean? And Jesus said this in verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And then in verse 15, he speaks to them and says, if you'll love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And literally the wording there is another helper of the same kind as me. And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. These things I spoke to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And we call the revelation of who God is in Scripture as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit by the name Trinity. And the Trinity 
is a conceptual name that we have given to the expressions that are found in Scripture. Now, you probably have seen at times pictures and diagrams of the Trinity, and you've seen different ways that people have tried to explain it. So let's just ask that question, who is the Trinity? What does the Bible say? Well, let me give you a summary statement. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. Distinct personal attributes without division of nature, essence, or or being. So who makes up the Trinity? Well, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So let's talk just a moment about the Father. The Father reigns with providential care and heart of a father. In Ephesians 4, 6, it says, we have one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And then in Galatians 4, it says, and because you're his children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that... <coughs> excuse me, that the Father has the heart of a Father toward us, wanting us to know Him in relationship, calling us to Himself through His Son, and desiring us to have an intimacy with Him so that we can know Him. Christ is the eternal Son of God. Christ existed in time and eternity and beyond time through all eternity before his incarnation as Jesus Christ. The Bible says in his incarnation as Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identified himself completely with mankind, yet was without sin. In Colossians 1.15, Paul records these words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And when the Bible talks about Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, there are three ideas that we need to latch on to. One is, is the incarnation. And in the incarnation, the Holy God of the universe, as known as Christ, took on flesh, humbled himself, pulled his glory, and emptied it out to walk among us. And in his incarnation, Jesus walked this earth fully God, fully man. You see, there was some heresy in the early church that suggested that Jesus was just a man, but the Spirit of God came upon at his baptism, and then at his crucifixion, he had jumped right off of him. That's called heresy. Jesus, fully God, fully man. How's that possible? Well, God can do what he chooses when it comes to his nature. And that's what was required, incarnation. Also, identification. 
You need to know that the Bible says that Jesus fully and completely identifies with you. He knows exactly what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be sleepy. He knows what it's like to have a job that needs to get done. He knows exactly what it's like to be tempted. The Bible says he was tempted in all ways yet found perfect. There is nothing that I've been tempted with that Jesus didn't get tempted with and Jesus didn't overcome. In his flesh, he could have said yes, never did. In all ways, he was perfect and found perfect. You see, if he couldn't have said yes, then he's not really human. Because at the very beginning, remember, when God created man and woman, what happened? He gave them free will. Jesus fully identifies with us. But not only that, there's one more I word instrumentation this is what it means Jesus was God's instrument to reconcile the world to himself and through his death on the cross the sinless lamb of God gave his life and paid a debt that I owed that you owed and restored back the opportunity that I have now to know God in fullness and for eternity if I will receive him and accept his finished work into my life by asking him to come into my heart and to embrace him as my Lord and Savior. Regardless of who I am, that opportunity is provided. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, fully divine. He inspired holy men of old to write the Scriptures through illumination. He enables men to understand truth. He exalts Christ. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He calls men to the Savior and affects regeneration. I want to remember the words of Jesus that we read a little bit earlier in John 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Remember this. As he told them this, they knew what it was like to walk with Jesus. And there's not one apostle when the Holy Spirit fell into their lives that ever said, I got second best. They got Jesus in their heart. The Spirit of God filled them. John 15, 26 says, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit fills us. He empowers us. He inspired the Word of God to be able to be written, and he illuminates the Word of God into our heart. He is the surety of our inheritance. He's the guarantee of the days to come, and by him we can know the Father, and in him we cry out, Abba, Father, I want to know you, God. But why does it matter? Why does it matter that I can fully understand more clearly about who God is, how the Trinity is the expression fully of who God is and explains to us separate but same. Only one God, three in one, made holy. Because we all have neighbors that may have questions. We all have people in our lives that may be wanting to understand better what we say that we believe. And I will tell you that sometimes we have in a well-meaning way shared analogies that are really, really poor. 
or even thoughts that actually were part of a seedbed of early church heresy. So I'm going to mention three of those just so that you'll be aware. One of those, and just the three most common, is called tritheism. And tritheism says that there are three distinct persons of the Trinity, and there are actually three distinct gods. Not one God, three expressions, but they are three distinct gods. And that's polytheism. And there are people from other world religions that look at us and say, well, really, you believe in three gods? And the answer is no, we believe in one God, three expressions. Let me explain. Matter of fact, it's a common charge to those that we send overseas that work in countries that are largely Islamic for them to look at us and say, well, y'all don't believe in the one God. We do. You believe in three gods. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Isaiah 43.10 says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And the example analogy that's sometimes used excuse me, is the Trinity is like an egg or an apple, and the outer shell or the outer skin is the Father, the white is the flesh, that's the Son, and then the seed or the yoke is the promise of the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is that's tritheism. That's not what the Bible describes at all. The Bible describes we worship God. In God, we have three expressions that are unique and distinct and yet the same. The other is Arianism. That the first and greatest creation of God is actually the Son of God. And that at some point, God created Jesus. And that Jesus did not always exist. And by it, it fails to understand the eternal nature of Christ, that he was never created, that Christ always was. John 8, 58, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And in that, he picked up the purposeful name of God by which they would have understood that he said, I am God. In John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And yet, Arianism, that Jesus is simply a created being, that he's the greatest, the pinnacle, but he is a created being, not the creator, but the created, is a misconception that has been embraced and a heresy that is taught within groups such as the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Co-opting the name of Jesus into your title doesn't mean that you're a Christ follower. And I have read the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. I am very familiar with the literature, and I want you to understand that in that theology, they believe this. Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers. And they were born to God through his wives. The Mormon publication, Insight, says it like this. On first hearing, the doctrine that Lucifer and our Lord Jesus Christ were brothers may seem surprising to some, especially to those unacquainted with Latter-day Revelations, but both the Scriptures and the prophets affirm that Jesus Christ and Lucifer are indeed the offspring of our Heavenly Father and therefore spirit brothers. Doctrines and Covenants, section 76, number 25. Jesus is not Satan's brother. 
Jesus is not in competition with Satan. Jesus is God. I just want to say to you again and again how critical it is that we're able to explain the truth of what the Word of God says. Some of those examples of using that kind of analogy is saying that the Trinity is like the sun and that the sun is an entity and it puts out light and it puts out heat and those three expressions are are like God but the trinity but that's false because here's the thing the sun is a created entity that then creates heat and creates light which means that the sun is the first cause and that Jesus and the holy spirit are the second causes and that causes nothing but confusion Because for eternity, God is, and for eternity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost serves for eternity. There's one more I'll mention. It's called modalism. Modalism is God is singular, but he reveals himself in three different modes through history. So in the Old Testament, God was the Father. And the incarnation... Jesus is God, and then at the ascension, now the Holy Spirit is God. It's modalism. But it's in total disagreement with the Scripture. Psalms 110.1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Are they talking to themselves? In the same way, in John 17.1, Jesus prayed out right before the cross, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. If you believe in modalism, Jesus is bifurcating who he is in that prayer. An example of that analogy and the weakness in it is when we say that the Trinity is like a man who is a father and a son and a husband. We're back to modalism. Or some people say, well, the Trinity is, is, is like water. It can be liquid. It can be solid. It can be a gas. Here's the problem with analogies. Every time you try to use an analogy to explain the mystery of God, it will always go wrong. Don't escape this. You don't want to serve a God that you can literally describe in logic and put in your box and say, there he is. That's not God. That's what the Bible describes as an idol. You make them out of wood and stone, and then you got to hang them on a hook. And the same God you worship, you warm yourself by the fire. We serve The God who spoke the worlds into existence. And he cannot fit anybody's box. And that's the God who loves you. That's the God who sent his son to die for you. That's the God who said, if you'll seek me, you're going to find me. Just believe I reward those who seek me. I'm back to what we read in Hebrews eleven six. 6. And without faith is it impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. God wants you to know him. 
He wants you to pursue him. And your journey begins by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Will you bow your heads with me? I don't know where you might be on the journey today. I don't know if you're at the beginning stage where you're just learning about God. I don't know if you're at the place where you have questions about Jesus that you need answers to. I don't know if you're at the place where perhaps you've said yes to Jesus, but you haven't followed him in scriptural baptism, or you haven't taken those steps to grow in him. I, I don't know where you are today, but I know this. God knows exactly where you are. He's right there with you, and he wants you to know him. So, Father, I ask that you would give strength to those that are here today as they respond to you. Not whether or not they come to this aisle or whether or not they come forward for prayer, but, Father, where they are right now. As they are trying to take that next step in their journey in growing in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would draw them close, that they would know how special they are to you, how precious they are to you, how much you want to know them and for them to know you. I pray, Father, that today would be a day where the next step was taken so that we could fully know you more. In Jesus, your holy and precious name, amen. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we're standing. There's going to be an opportunity. We have some deacons and their family that will be here on the right or the left and staff. We have a room that's just right outside these doors to your left that we'd be happy to visit with you further. I'd be happy to visit with you or pray with you. But we're just going to take the next few moments to prayerfully respond, whether you need to pray at this altar or you need to pray with someone. But this is your time to be able to have that moment with the Lord. So let's just sing together. Let's pray together. Let's say yes what God is doing in our lives now as we sing.